the ability to connect with people is, is really the critical element. And I don't mind telling all of your viewers slash listeners that that's the key because you can either do it or you can't. I'll give all of the techniques and, and then they can do their best to implement them in their practices. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby. My special guest today is Doug Johnson. Doug is the president of Valor Partners, an executive search firm he founded in 2002. Doug specializes in recruiting leaders in sales, marketing, and strategy within enterprise software. He's particularly focused on working with and placing female leaders in tech. Over the last 20 years, Doug has placed 600 high performers with companies such as SAP, Microsoft, Salesforce.com, Honeywell, GE, and numerous startups. Prior to founding Valor Partners, Doug spent six years at MRI, where he was a five-time top 10 account executive of the year and two-time national account executive of the year. He's a single dad with two kids and two dogs and a competitive tennis player. I've known Doug for, I think, about four or five years now. Doug, welcome and thanks for being here. Glad to be here, Mark. We've never actually met in person, you know, but I think you have been to Scotland before, correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I took my kids about uh, six or seven years ago. All right, awesome. What what brought you here? What were you What were you doing over here? Um, after I after I got divorced, uh, one of the things that I decided was I was going to try to make um, make my kids' lives as as sort of fun and enjoyable. Not to forget about the divorce, just to say, you know, this is this is something that I'd like you to experience. And one of those things that was always big on the list was uh, getting them out to see different parts of the world, meeting different parts of, you know, different cultures, different people, just seeing how different people, you know, lived and how different com- countries operated. Uh, and so the UK and, and Scotland, we have some, we have some friends over there as well. So it was always a good excuse uh, to go visit friends and see different parts of, uh, of Europe as well. All right, cool. I love that. Um, Doug, we are in a really strange market, which we're going to definitely talk about. We can't kind of ignore the elephant in the room. But before we get to that, let's go back in time. Can you talk me through your early career in recruiting, like how you got into recruiting and, you know, your early successes with MRI? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's one of my favorite stories. So uh, the way I got into recruiting was actually quite accidental. Uh, I had been living in Minneapolis. My wife uh, had received an internship to um, to a college in North Carolina, so we moved to North Carolina. The company that I had been working for in Minneapolis uh, said, "Oh, just just stay with us, work remote," uh, which was great. Uh, so I was able to work from the kitchen table, and it was an easy transition. And about three months into being in Charlotte, um, I got a call from the new boss who said, uh, hey, you know, tell me about your accounts and tell me about you. And we went through all of the accounts and everything. And at the end of sort of this download of all this information, the guy says, oh, thanks for all that information. By the way, you're fired. Um, so he, oh my gosh. he tapped me for all my account information and then he let me go. And I was in shock. I said, "What? you know, why'd you do that? What's, what's the problem? He said, I just don't want anybody remote. So, uh, you know. I get it. That's life. Uh, but here I was in this city I'd never been, had been working at my kitchen table for three months, had no job. 
Um, and so my first reaction was, I better call some, some search firms to see if they've got any jobs for me. Uh, and I ended up calling uh, a couple and, and one of them said, yeah, you know, come on in. We'd love to meet you. And at the end of the, the interview with uh, this husband and wife team in this small office in the town next door, they said, I said, so what do you think? And they said, yeah, we got a job for you. And I said, great. What is it? And they said, you see that desk right over there? Show up there and sit down at that desk tomorrow and that'll be your job. Uh, and so, <laughs> so I did. And um, I was effectively this woman's project coordinator. And um, Mark, I got to tell you, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. Uh, I didn't like working for this woman. She was demanding and she yelled at me and, and it was hard. And um, so, so what I decided was that uh, every day I was going to quit. So for the, first, for the first three months, every day I went in, I, I told myself, this is it. This is my last day. So I'm going to make it my best day. And um, I would go in and um, I would have a great day. And because that was it, I was done. And um, then I'd wake up the next morning. I didn't have anything else to do. So I would, I would begrudgingly grit my teeth and go back in. And at the end of about three months, um, you know, I sort of took inventory and stock of, of what I had done. And I discovered I was, I was really quite good at it. Um, and my boss was pleased. And, you know, so I, I sort of put my nose to the grindstone then and actually started to work at it. Uh, and three months later, I switched over to full-blown account executive and sort of the rest is history at that point. So, you know, that was, um, I guess I switched over to, to owning my own clients and effectively building my own desk in 1997. That's the exact same year that I started. Doug, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So, Doug, it's funny. You're the first person I've spoken to who has told me that when they started in recruiting, they wanted to quit. And I'm so glad you said that because I felt the exact same way when I started. I was yeah. sitting there going, what have I gotten into here? Because yeah. it was like, okay, Mark, here's a desk, here's a phone, you know, get on with it. And uh, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was just supposed to make calls all day until I found some uh, job orders. And Yeah, well, let, you know, let's, let's also remember that, that, you know, way back when, when you and I got started – you know, the internet wasn't necessarily a thing. Yeah. Cell phones were not a thing. Nope. You know, LinkedIn was a, a glimmer in someone's eye. I mean, that wasn't even an idea. <laughs> so, so when I started, um, you know, I would have to go home at night and I would have to do all my research where I had an internet connection because this woman didn't have an internet connection at her office. I mean, it was just a phone. And I said, well, where am I supposed to get these numbers? And if I wasn't doing my own research at night, she had this big, thick book called Corp Tech. Oh, yeah. And there were yeah, about three volumes of it to find companies. So I'd have to look through and find these phone numbers and then call. And, you know, it wasn't like I could flip through LinkedIn and find the next, you know, the next sales guy, the sales guy in Chicago or the marketing guy in Detroit. I couldn't do that. So you had to get really, really good at asking for referrals and networking and getting information from the people so you could maximize these phone calls 
And, you know, to all those recruiters that are just getting started or have been doing this for the last five years, you guys got it easy. You guys have it so easy. And it's a double-edged sword because, because it is so easy. They don't really, in my opinion, they don't really understand how to go about the business of getting referrals. They don't really work to improve those skills or even in some cases learn those skills. And so they're content to, to go through LinkedIn and do all of their own research and really dig in to, you know, finding names. And the reality is that if they were really good at getting referrals, they could shortcut the entire search process by simply asking for who's the best person here and who's the best person there. Um, and the search would be done in, in a fraction of the time, which is, you know, sort of one of the keys to, I think, what makes me good at what I do is not that I'm some super genius, just that I'm really good at asking questions and getting getting referrals. Can we double click on that for a second, Doug? Like, um, could you elaborate on how you would uh, set up the conversation in order to, you know, um put yourself in a position that the candidate or client is happy to give you those referrals? Like what's the technique? Mark, you're going to make me give away all my secrets. <laughs> um, okay. So I can't believe that more people don't do this. So, so here's, here's the secret. The secret is in the introduction. Um, most recruiters, the vast majority of recruiters will come into a call and effectively uh, do the throw up or show up and throw up, you know, Hey candidate, I got a great job. Let me tell you about it. It's with a great company working for a great boss, a great product, blah, 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 blah. And you know, that's, that's noise. Um, everybody does it. It's ineffective. It doesn't work. Um, and I've never done that. Uh, my big belief is that it's, and it's especially true in this particular market where there is so much noise, where these people get hammered by LinkedIn messages and email messages and, you know, to a lesser degree, voicemail, which is somewhat to our advantage being old school. Um, but they get overwhelmed with this stuff. And, and rather than just constantly pitch jobs, the, the ability to connect with people is, is really the critical element. And I don't mind, you know, telling all of your viewers slash listeners that that's the key because you can either do it or you can't. So I can, I'll give all of the techniques and, and then they can do their best to implement them in their practices. Um, so the key is to, to make it about the person that you're talking to. I mean, that is, that is truly the key. Um, to answer your question more specifically, uh, when I do, when I make the introduction, you've got to bear in mind that the people that you're talking to from a candidate standpoint don't really know or they don't know at all what it is that you know. They don't know what you're working on. They don't know who your client is. They don't know how many clients you have. They don't know any of that stuff. And that's critical to remember in your introduction. So when I call somebody, uh, I'll simply say, hey, Mark, my name is Doug. I'm an executive recruiter with Valor Partners. I'm working on several things in your area. Your name was given to me confidentially, and I'm interested to learn a little bit more about you. Are you open to having a conversation? That's it. I mean, it, there's there may be a little bit of slight variation there, um, but the the subtle things that that happened in that introduction that I that I will point out is that when I introduced myself, that's fine, um, but I mentioned that I'm working on several things in their area. I'm careful to never define their area. 
I want them to make any assumption that they want. They can assume it's geographic. They can assume it's industry. They can assume it's function. I don't care. I mean, make any assumption that, that you want. But I'm working on several things in their area. Um, I, I, I always will come in uh, and tell them that it was a confidential referral. Uh, some people will, will not talk to me because I say that, and that's fine. Uh, I'm willing to lose uh, candidates at that point. Um, if they, if they don't, if they don't like that confidential piece and what I will tell them is, you know, look, I've been doing this for a long time and, and you don't have to have been doing this a long time, by the way. Um, but I want them to understand that what they, what they share with me stays with me and that the relationship that we're going to build is going to be based on trust. And, and if they ask me to, to reveal a confidential source and I do, the only thing that they're really hearing is. You can't trust me, and I'm not gonna. And I'm not gonna have the relationship based on that. So I will tell people that, and I'll say, now, do you want to talk to me or not? And some people still say no, and that's fine. That is fine. So the the that subtle piece of I'm working on several things in your area. At the end of the conversation is when that becomes important because I come back to them. I mean, let's let's use this as an example. And again, giving away the secrets here. Uh, oftentimes I'm asked to work on searches where geography is less important. Let's say, I mean, I've got a search right now, for example, where location is the East Coast, could be anywhere on the East Coast because the company is headquartered in the UK. They just want the same business day time zone. So anywhere on the East Coast is fine. Uh, so if I recruit somebody in Boston, because I've, I've have not said, hey, I need somebody on the East Coast, um, I have left open that they, they're going to make the assumption that it's Boston. So I can go any location south of Boston. I could say, let's say, for example, they're not my candidate for any number of different reasons. I don't have to say, hey, you're not my guy. I could say, hey, I, I like your background. Um, I've got this exact same search in New York. Who's the best person you know? I've got this exact same search in uh, D.C. Who's the best person you know? Atlanta. Who's the best person you know? And I'm asking them for candidates for the exact same search. They don't know that. So, so, you know, how you get referrals oftentimes is, is based on how you set up your introduction. Um, and I'm not being deceptive and I'm not lying. I'm not doing any of that stuff. I'm just allowing the person I'm talking to, to make an assumption based on me not giving a bunch of specific detail. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Interesting. Um, there was a lot there that uh, that resonated for me. And what I like about your introduction, Doug, is that it's you make it really easy for them to say, sure, I'm, I'd be open to a conversation. Whereas right. when someone comes along and pitches a specific opportunity, then number one, you're shooting in the dark because you have no idea what that person's you know, interests are, what their ambitions are, what kinds of things are going to be, are going to get their attention. So... Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're really doing yourself a disservice there. And number two, you're asking them, are you interested in this specific job, which is a much taller, and it's a bigger ask than just saying, hey, are you open to having a conversation about, you know, a number of opportunities? And that just feels like a much more natural way to get into a conversation. Yeah, it is. And, and the other thing is that, for all of you smart recruiters out there, if you're going to grow a business, um, 
The best way to do that is to be working with companies that are directly competitive or working in adjacent spaces, working on jobs that um, multiple clients will hire the same profile for. So in the perfect world, when I, when I walk in and say, hey, I'm working on several things in your area, that's not a joke. That's not a lie. That's true. And, you know, all of these companies have subtle differences or big, important differences. Some are big, some are small, some are, you know, startups, some aren't, you know, some are private, some are public. And, and I don't know what's going to resonate with that, that individual. Um, so to your point, that's, that's critically important. The other thing that, that allows um, or, or the reason that I take that approach is that if I come in and I pitch a job, hey, Mark, I've got this job with this company. You know, what you're listening for is stuff to say no to. I mean, people are naturally resistant to change. So they're not listening for things that well, they'll, where they'll say, oh, yeah, that sounds sounds lovely. You know, what they're listening for is how do I get out of this conversation? You know, what is this clown going to say that will allow me to, to use that as the excuse? Um, it, that's just what, natu- you know, people will do that naturally. But, but if I come in pitching a single job, I don't get any chance to build a relationship with this person. I don't get a chance to know this person. I don't get a chance to ask this person for referrals later because if I pitch the job and they say no, guess what? Call's over. I don't know anything about them. I don't know when to pick up the phone next. So it becomes a game of, you know, it becomes a guessing game for the entirety of, of how long I might know this person. Um, you know, and the difference between, you know, how I might do that or how you might do that or, you know, how, how somebody else might do that is all in your ability to connect. And, and, and that's something, I mean, I can put words in people's mouths and I can tell them how to do it, but that, you know, you can either do it or you can't do it. And, you know, that's, that's the ultimate difference maker is, is really taking the time to think about what, what resonates with people. And oftentimes, you know, I will just sit down and, and run these conversations through my, through my head or, you know, do the old fashioned talk into a mirror, even with 20 years of experience, I'll still do this to, to play out the, if somebody was having the same conversation with me, how would I respond? What would make sense to me? Where would I be thinking this is, this is, you know, they're blowing smoke up my, my skirt. Um, and, you know, get rid of the stuff that doesn't feel good and, and stick with the stuff that does feel good. You know, it's so important and overlooked to be able to really see things from another person's point of view. It's hard to do that. But if you can evaluate what you're saying and the questions you're asking from another person's point of view and think about how they might interpret or respond to that, I think that's really powerful, Doug. Tell me... Um, so you were, uh, you built a million dollars a year for two years in a row with MRI. Yep. How did you go from the guy who, the rookie, no experience, <laughs> hated the job to right. being able to pull that off? Uh, one, I was and am pretty competitive. Uh, so uh, that was that was sort of the driver. Um when I when I made that that move from you know being being somebody else's project coordinator to being an account executive, it was really based on on money. 
Um, and I don't mean that from the standpoint of, oh, yeah, I got to make more. It was from the standpoint of I had generated over $250,000 worth of cash in in a relatively short period of time. And my, my take of that was about 10000 bucks. And that math made no sense to me. So, uh, you know, it was at that point that I went to my boss and I said, this, this math is unworkable. And if this is the way it's going to be, I'm leaving. And what are, what are our choices? And she, she offered to cut my salary in half. And at that point, my salary was only 1100 bucks. So who cares? Um, and she said, I'll cut your salary in half and I'll double your commission. My commission was 5%. So she was going to give me 500 bucks and 10% of my deals. <laughs> she said, or uh, you can go straight commission for 35%. So I, I you know, slept on it and quickly came in with a decision that straight commission was best. So I swallowed hard and, and went without you know, any pay for several months. But my first commission check was $8,000. Nice. That was a lot of money. That was the most money that I'd ever seen in one check. And um, I was highly motivated because what I, what I had done to earn that check to me didn't feel like work. I mean, I was just talking to people and I was having fun and I was learning every day and, and I loved doing research on these companies. So, you know, every night I'd go home and I'd do research and every day I'd come in and I'd make those calls and I would, you know, I, would, I was just hustling around, but it wasn't hustling for the money. It was hustling for the fun. You know, I was hustling for the relationships and getting to know these people and talking to these people and sort of challenging myself if I call this CEO, will the CEO talk to me? And sometimes they would, and sometimes they wouldn't. And I didn't care because there was always more people to call. Um, and so it, it, that was that was the driver. And and I sort of taught myself what I had said earlier, that if you're working in similar industries with similar companies or adjacent companies or the partners of your clients, they're looking for the same people. So work on the same general kinds of jobs and, and you know, really promoted within my own practice this idea of candidate recyclability um, where I could learn from all my candidates. It wasn't, I never looked at the process as this thing happens in a vacuum. You know, if I'm recruiting this particular candidate, it's not for this particular job over here. It's, it wasn't this one call for this one thing. It was this one call for this client, this client, this client, this client. And oh, by the way, candidate I'm also working on these related roles. Who's the best person you've you've worked with in this area, in that area, in that area? And tell me about who the competitors are that you lose to, and to, um, tell me why you lose, and tell me, you know, when you win, why do you win? And so I was just gathering all of this information that was all related. It was all related, and so I was able to to sort of quickly move through identifying who are the best people, who are the best companies, who are the companies you want to avoid. What's happening? You know, news, trends, all of these different things in single phone calls. I was able to gather all of this information. So I didn't have to go and, you know, read through journals and trade publications and, you know, check the news and do all this stuff at night. I mean, I was absorbing so much information over the course of the day. And what what happened is the natural consequence was I was making deal after deal after deal because I was aware of all of these things that were happening in the industry. I mean, hell, Mark, I would recruit somebody out of company A to one of my clients and I would call the CEO at company A to say, 
hey, I've got a great candidate in Chicago. And the guy's like, no, 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 we got somebody in Chicago. I'll be like, oh, well, well, you know, take my number. If something happens, let me know. The guy was going to quit in two days. You know, so I, I, I was... I was smart about this stuff. And, and when you spin the wheels together in the right way to get multiple pieces of information, multiple pieces of data out of, out of one call, that's, that's how you're able to do this stuff. That's how you're able to build a business. You know, if you're always off doing something because, oh, it's fun or, oh, it's different or, oh, my phone rang and I answered it. Um, yeah, you'll make money and it'll be good, but you'll be learning a new business. You'll be learning a new industry. You'll be learning a new function all the time. And, and, you know, trust me when I tell you that while you're, while you're making money and it feels like you're growing a business, the reality is if, if that is your strategy, you're going to be 10 years into your business, 15 years into your business. And you're going to look around and say, what have I built? And the answer is going to be my bank account and not much else. And you're still going to be working your ass off because you've got to relearn stuff every time or not even relearn it. Just learn it for the first time. And, and honestly, that's a little bit of what I'm experiencing today because part of my issue for as successful as I was, I was a bit of a generalist. Uh, I wasn't a bit of a generalist. I was a really, really good generalist. And, and the generalist is dying, um, you know, and I'm learning that the hard way. And it's, and it's painful because I've got a lot of relationships with a lot of super cool, successful people uh, scattered across the enterprise software space. Um, but, I've, but I've done it all. You know, it's not like I have a Rolodex of, uh, you know, just customer success people or just a Rolodex of, um, you know, you know, product marketing people or, or whatever. I mean, I've got a Rolodex of damn near everybody in every function. And, you know, the reality is the sad reality for me is that it's, it's painful. It's painful. What, what, what do you mean by that? What's painful? You know, it's, it's sort of a, a double-edged sword of, I can do anything. I can recruit anybody. I'm, I know a bunch of people. So it's not a matter of, of being able to do things. It's a matter of, of your life being easier. Um, and what I've found is that no matter how large my firm is, and I, and I never aspired to grow a really large company. I mean, we've got four people here today. We've been as large as I think 10 or 11. And then, you know, those numbers cycle up and down. Um, you know, that's, that's not the important piece for me. The important piece these days, having done this for as long as I have, is that sometimes I just want my life to be easier. You know, sometimes I just I just want to be able to be the guy that's known as, you know, the best recruiter for this function uh, or this industry. And, you know, a lot of people will will know me for that, but not not everybody knows me for that. And it's and so it's it's frustrating because when I'm when I'm introducing myself to somebody new, uh, you know, oftentimes and this is a, a relatively new trend that I've seen over the last probably three to five years uh, though I'm sure it's been happening for longer than that. You'll get these questions, you know, when you identify an opportunity, when you're asked to do something, they'll say, well, you know, for example, if I'm, if I'm asked to do a, a VP of sales search, which I've done tons of VPs of sales searches, um, but it's not all that I do. 
And so you run into these people that will ask the question, because it seems like a legitimate question, how many VP of sales searches have you done the last year? And you say two or three, and that's pretty good. Um, and they say, oh, well, we, we really want somebody that's done eight or 10 or 15. I'm like, well, you know, that's not me. Could it be me? Sure, it could be, um, but it's not. And, and, and that's really the challenge is, you know, trying to figure out what do I want to be? You know, what do I want to be known as? And, and then you sort of roll around. Is that really important? Um, you know, and some days, some days it's more important than other days, but I, I can tell you that if, if you built a practice that was all focused on, on one particular function in one particular area, let's say that, um, all you did was salespeople, uh, for financial services. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it sucks to start from zero or start from scratch or start from a couple, uh, but you've got to keep your eye on sort of what that end game is. Where am I going to be six months from now? Where am I going to be a year from now? Uh, if that's, you know, if that's your message over and over and over again, you're only talking to VPs of sales because you only do financial services salespeople. That is it. You get to know all of those people. So, you know, a year later, after you've done that, after you've been consistent, um, you know, you've built a pretty big network of people. You know a lot of people. So when you get that search, it's not going to take you 100 phone calls. It's going to take you 10. Uh, Because again, you're working within this sphere of of connections where everybody knows everybody. So even if you don't know the candidate for that particular search, chances are probably pretty good. You know the candidate that knows the candidate. So, I mean, recruiting is one of those things where it's, it's a lot of work, it's a heavy lift, but focus and sort of keeping your, your eye on where this thing could go if you do it right is key. Uh, and then you just have to be careful to, to you know, make sure that you're not specializing in something like airline pilots when a, when a pandemic hits. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Doug, uh, I agree 100%. I'm a huge believer in being a specialist and having a niche that you are focused on. In fact, my Billings Accelerator program, the second module is about how to identify or like define or redefine your, your market niche so that you're, you know, going to be able to accomplish exactly what you just described. The recruitment industry is going through a time of unprecedented challenge and all of us have been affected to a greater or lesser extent. From what I can see from my vantage point, speaking to hundreds of recruitment business owners around the world, for the vast majority of recruiters, this is a very painful time. What about you? Do you have a plan for the next 30, 60, and 90 days? All of my clients have a plan to navigate this crisis because I've helped them to create one. I've survived multiple economic cycles, including the dot-com bubble, the crash after 9-11, the Great Recession of 08-09. And listen, I know this is different to anything we've seen before, but based on my past experience, I'm confident that I'm getting through this in decent shape and I'm determined to bring my clients with me. So if you're ready to be proactive instead of reactive and you're open to getting some guidance and support, then you're invited to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. I will be focused on helping you to get clarity on your situation and create a plan for moving forward. 
By the way, I don't have all the answers and I'm not promising miracles. I can promise you'll leave the call feeling focused and re-energized with a solid plan for moving forward with or without my help. Once again, it's www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Can I just go back a minute? Like the timeline from you to when you became an account executive to when you started really getting traction and and getting all these deal after deal after deal. How, how long did that take? Six months. Okay, wow. So, um, and then from there, you you know, you had a great run with MRI. What made you decide that you wanted to go out on your own and set up, do your own thing? Uh, yeah, so I love this story uh, because it's one of those things where it makes people's jaws drop. So so that, that story goes like this. Um, I, I was, uh, the, the two years that I was the, the national account executive of the year, you know, not surprisingly were my best W2 years. Um, and it was, it was over, you know, I made over $650,000, uh, in both of those years. Uh, but I had had this, this sort of nagging desire um, to help people learn the business in the same way that the woman that I had been working for had helped me to learn my business. You know, now, she was tough. I always referred to her. I don't even know if she's still alive anymore because um, she was about 75 then, uh, so probably not. Um, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me if she was. But she was tough. You know, she was, um, she was a battle axe and she yelled a lot and, you know, wouldn't allow me to get away with anything, but she also taught me how to do this business successfully and how to deal with clients and how to deal with just about any situation that had come up. And, and I will be forever grateful. I didn't appreciate it probably as much as I should have in those moments, uh, but I appreciate it a lot now. And I'm, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm grateful for what she, she taught me. She gave me a great foundation. Um, but I got to that point where I wanted I wanted to do for someone else what she had done for me. And, you know, here I was, I was successful. I was busy, busy. I was super busy uh, because you can't, you know, you can't bill over a million dollars as a solo without, you know, getting to the point where you're running on fumes pretty fast. And, and I could have really used some help. So it was sort of a, a win-win. I'd bring somebody in, train them in the same way that she trained me fundamentally change their life for the better, like she changed mine. And, you know, we could do even more and it was going to be great. And so I approached her with this idea of, hey, let me bring in a project coordinator to work with me that I can teach in the same way that, that you taught me. And she said, no. She said, I want you to sit at that desk and keep doing what you're doing, make a lot of money. It'll be great. And of course, you know, where I might have made you know, 600,000, she was making 700,000. So it was a hell of a deal for her. She didn't, I mean, literally she had to do nothing at that point. Nothing, you know, wake up, breathe air, have some food, go to bed, you know, make 700 grand. And, and I couldn't believe that she wouldn't let me bring somebody on. And so I quit. So my, my wife looked at me and she's like, wait a second, you want to quit? And I said, yeah, she's like, but you're, you're making so much money. And I said, don't care. You know, this, this is more important to me. You know, I want to impact 
I want to have a greater impact than just padding a bank account. And, and so I quit. And my boss couldn't believe it. And she said, you know, you think it's going to be easy. You think you're going to make so much more money. And I, I didn't really think that. But uh, it's very short sighted. I mean, she killed the, the goose that lays the golden eggs. And uh, instead of thinking bigger that, you know, if this guy wants to progress and develop then, and he's got that ambition, that's absolutely the person I want in my team. He's going to grow my yeah. business for me. Yeah, not on not on her team. Crazy. No, she didn't. She didn't want that. So yeah, it was a little short sighted, and uh, you know, I have been able to do what I set out to do. Not as many times as I as I would prefer, but I've got you know several examples of of having sort of fundamentally changed people's lives for the better by teaching them the same way that she taught me. So, paint a picture then. So you you left the uh, the desk that was really cranking. I mean, you were doing phenomenally well. And then you, you're starting not from scratch because you're, you have all the knowledge and all the contacts, but you're, you're sort of pressing reset and, and going again under your own banner. Um, what were the challenges involved in making that work? <laughs> yeah. Well, so the, it got, it got ugly um, so that's where your challenges really start. Um, so initially she was like, oh yeah, I understand. That's fine. Uh, then she sued me. Uh, then she enforced a non-compete radius of 50 miles, um, and said, if you want to be a recruiter, you can either move or sit on the bench for a year. So I moved. So, um, you know, my challenges got fairly monumental immediately. Um, you know, we, we figured out a workaround on, uh, the suing me part, uh, and we settled for me paying her a whole lot of money, uh, in year one for a copy of my data. So, you know, the good news was I would be able to keep my clients. Um, I wouldn't have to start from scratch, uh, but it would, it would hurt me financially in year one. And it did, um, but, you know, then I had then I had to move and then I had two young kids and then I had to find you know, space and buy computers and, you know, phones and all the stuff that goes into sort of just the overall setup of of getting in place. Um, so those those were the sort of the big fundamental challenges. But once I got that stuff done, then I just had to learn how to operate on my own. Truly on my own, you know not having somebody I could ask questions to, not having somebody that would send out an invoice for me, like, you know, the, the front office person there, the receptionist would from time to time. Um, so I had to, I had to do all that stuff on my own. So it was, you know, it was, it was a heavy lift. Yeah, no, totally. So fast forward, what, that was 2002, you set up Valor Partners, right? So uh, 2000, 2003, I left, I left my old place, uh, 2002. Okay. So 17 years that you've been doing this now. Wow. Uh, I mean, in the 20 minutes we have left, we're not going to be able to do that justice, but, right. um, so look, let's fast forward to today, Doug, and with everything, you know, and all the experience and the success you've had, um, what's your take on the current market and how, 
people can best kind of get through this, um, you know, this terrible, you know, market that we're in. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> what? What crisis? Um, yeah. So, you know, let's let's not pretend that everything is great. It's not. This is this is really hard. Um this is, this is how I describe this to people. You know, I lived through the tech bubble bursting in 2000, 2001. Those were my best years. They were my best years. And all I was doing was tech. So I know that, that stuff happens, you know, that can be really positive in what seems like the gloomiest of conditions. And I lived through the financial downturn, didn't even feel it. But this is different because this impacts everybody. It impacts every industry. It impacts uh, every level of position, every size company, every everything, because you get to see the interconnectedness of how, you know, for example, the, the companies that I serve, these software companies, the companies that they serve are impacted. They don't have as much money to spend on software, which means the software companies aren't going to grow as fast, which means they don't need my help as much. You know, it's not a, it's not a shock. That said, there's still... There's still a lot of stuff out there in my industry and in lots of other industries. So the realities are that, yeah, you need to work harder. There's no getting around it. And you need to utilize the resources that are available to you. And it's going to take, you know, it's going to take longer uh, to, to get to those goals. Um, there's just no getting around it. I, you know, to anybody, I would say, accept, accept it. You know, make peace with the way this is. There ain't there ain't no magic bullet that's going to make it easier for you to get clients. Now, there are some things that will make it easier for you to get clients, and it's and it's the stuff that that has always worked well if you know this stuff. So, you know, the the things that I would suggest um, are you better be a human being. You know, start start there. Be empathetic. Understand that, you know, you've got to be somewhat relatable, if not completely relatable, to get people to engage. Because if you, you know, to go back to what I was talking about earlier and what you were quick to agree with is, you know, think about these people that are, you know, doing the job that you're trying to recruit and and what their life is like. You know, they're getting hammered by emails. Hammered. They're getting emails at their work email. They're getting LinkedIn messages like it's going out of style. They're getting phone calls all day long from recruiters or from salespeople or from whatever. I mean, that's that's over and above the people that are that are actually contacting them about their business, you know, about you know their clients or their prospects or their partners. I mean, they're getting hammered by those people as well. So everybody is overwhelmed. So how do you separate yourself? from the noise. You know, that is that is really the key to growing your business in this market is being able to separate yourself. That doesn't mean you're going to work less. You won't. Um, but it will make you more, I think, trustworthy, um, you know, worthwhile. You'll get more referrals. Um, you know, all of those things will make a difference. All of the things that are happening right now that you're doing right now will will set you up for six months from now or exactly. a year from now or yeah. whenever this thing breaks, 
And, and that's, that's where you have to really focus. So even on those days where I don't want to make a phone call, and believe me, there's a lot of them, um, you know, where I'd rather just sit behind the keyboard and, you know, pound out emails. And that, that doesn't make for much of a relationship. Um, so I'm picking up the phone, remembering that six months from now, this work that I'm doing right now today will pay a dividend. Um, and that's, you know, you, you've got to have the blind faith that that's going to be the case. And I got, you know, 20 plus years of blind faith that says that's the case. So that's, that's what I'm continuing to do. I'm not doing anything that's all that different. I'm doing the stuff that, that works. And I'm, and I'm really sensitive to making sure that I'm respectful of the people that I'm reaching out to. I will tell you uh, and all the people that are listening that, that one of the things that, um, that I get the most probably positive comments about, and if, and if somebody wants to go look at my LinkedIn page and read some of the recommendations, you'll see this stuff. Because when people say this to me, I tell them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you something. I want you to write a recommendation about that or write an endorsement about that. And it is, it is being respectful of, of the fact that I don't know anything about these people when I reach out to them. Nothing. I don't know what they like, what they don't like. I don't know if they're happy or unhappy. I don't know any of that stuff. And I acknowledge that from the beginning. You know, from the introduction, I am saying to people, I don't know anything about your circumstance. We've never talked before. I don't know you. Who am I to assume that I know what's best for you? I have no idea. And and that acknowledgement is, I mean, the difference between who's good at recruiting and who's not good starts right there. Because that is a that is a human connection that you're making, that acknowledgement that you don't know anything, you know? That's 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 really key, and especially in this market where there's so much noise and so much, I mean, distraction, fluff, smoke. You know, the ability for you to connect at a human level with somebody is is critically important. Beautiful, uh, uh, very well said. Uh, ah, thanks. Yeah. Hey, Doug, you and I were speaking a while back about the frustration of clients um, canceling orders and pulling the rug out from underneath you and that you have a remedy for that. Would you mind saying a little bit about how you um, convince clients that, you know, paying a deposit or an engagement fee makes sense from a, you know, why they, why they would want to do that? Yeah. So it, it is, it is my greatest frustration in this business right now. Uh, it happens all the time. We've been tracking our jobs for, for five years. Those, those searches that are incredibly well qualified with good companies uh, that have a sense of urgency, all of the right characteristics uh, of what should be a good search uh, 60% of them end with, uh, you know, the, the search being canceled or filled through another source when there's, there's no other candidates, so they say, um, when we start the search. Um, and that's, that's a lot of lost time and a lot of lost resources. Uh, and for my firm, that is somewhere between 40 and 60 searches a year. Um, so the way that, that, that I've discovered that the best way to get deposits is really about the questions that you ask. And, and I think that there's, there's two different levels of questions. There are, there are those questions that are 
sort of the obvious teeing up the engagement fee questions. You know, the how much money have you lost and how much how much money do you think it's costing you to leave this position open? And gosh, you know, that sure is a lot. Uh, I think that's garbage. I, I mean, those are good questions. Then they will work. Um, but it is it is really the, the questions, again, that sort of relate to, to the human condition around what's happening. Uh, things like uh, to the boss that you're talking to, you know, how does how does this position impact your life? You know, what's happening with your life uh, because of this? And you'll you if you can connect with people again, you're going to get questions like I have to work longer hours, you know, to which I say, so what? Well, I don't get to see my kids as often. So what? You know, I want I want to uncover you know, significant pain. And, and what I'm asking for, for, for a deposit is really not all that significant, but I, but I'm also taking the time to explain. I learned, I learned this from, um, from one of my coaches and it's, and it's highly effective. A guy named, um, Mike Gianta, um, is that, you know, when you're, when you're going into these, to these conversations, you know, a lot of it is about helping them to understand what you do. So Mike's really big on, on helping these, these companies to sort of understand from the moment we hang up after we talk about this job to the moment I, I send you a candidate, do you have any idea what happens? And the answer is almost always no, because they don't care. They just want the candidates. But it's critically important that they understand all of the things that happen so they can see how you're spending money and time to help them solve their problem. And so when you get done with that, you know, very simplistically to, to simply say, you know, and, and for that reason, this is, this is how I engage. And then you can sort of line out the terms. And if they don't want to pay a deposit, then, then you get to make a decision about how you're, how you're going to uh, sort of deal with that uh, or, you know, not deal with it. Sometimes sticking to your guns is is best, you know, and and really being able to explain things like, well, if you're going to engage three contingent recruiters, do you really expect 300 percent better performance? Is that is that what you expect? And, you know, to some degree, your job is to make your clients sort of feel stupid. You know, and I hate to say it like that because they're not stupid, but they just don't understand. And nobody's ever taken the time to explain it to them. So. You know, when you take the time to explain it to them, you, you just the other thing is really important. And, and I suffer with this. Believe me, you know, after even after 20 years, I, I don't give myself nearly enough credit sometimes for what I'm capable of doing to impact somebody's business. You know, just just that confidence of being able to say, you know, my my deposit is ten thousand dollars. I deduct it from the final fee upon placement. As soon as I get your check, I'll start your search. You know, to say that with conviction and mean it and, you know, have it stick. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've, you've got to say that like you've said it a thousand times. Um, and you've got to say it in a way. I mean, think about what, you know, some of these big retained firms. I mean, the expectation is if you're talking to Corn or Hydric or any of that other firm, you know, any of those other firms, when they say, you know, the deposit's going to be $50,000 and then we'll invoice you the second, third. I mean, it's just sort of a, this is just how we do it. You know how we do it. Just send us the check. We'll get started. You know, it's, it is assumed. And I think for, for any size firm, you know, my size firm, your size firm, whatever, 
um, you know, that same general attitude, if you're going to charge a deposit, that's, that's the way it's got to be. You have to just have that, that attitude that, of course, I'm going to charge you a deposit. I mean, what do you expect? Doug, uh, I often share with my clients your Mount Kilimanjaro story. In fact, it's in um, the first module of my program is about getting clear on your vision, what you were trying to achieve, why you want that. And I use the analogy of, uh, you know, you taking your kids uh, up Mount Kilimanjaro. Could you tell that story in the time we have left? Sure. Yeah. So, um what what spawned that vision is is I had I had I got divorced and I dated somebody and we talked about all of these life goals that we had and the thing that this woman wanted to do is she wanted to, to climb Mount Kilimanjaro while there was still snow on the mountain and I always thought to myself ah oh, that's kind of cool and then years later um, I got divorced again and I thought you know what I'm I'm going to do that and so I started looking into it and did a bunch of research and told the kids after I made the decision, I said, next summer we're going to Africa and we're going to go on safari and we're going to see lions and giraffes and elephants. It's going to be cool. And they were like, hooray, Uh, because they weren't, they weren't particularly old. I think they were, you know, 13 and 15 or 12 and 14 or something like that. And, um, and then I sort of said, oh yeah, and we're, and we're going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And that was sort of an enthusiasm killer for, for them. But we spent the next year training. Uh, you know, we, get, we got elevation masks, which are, which are effectively just masks that restrict your oxygen so we could train, you know, here pretty much at sea level for, you know, 12,000 feet, 15,000 feet. Um, and, and, you know, it brought us together. Um, it gave us something to do. I mean, there was always, you know, we can't go do that because we got a train this morning. So we all got on a schedule uh, and then we, we got over there and it was, I mean, Africa is, is a crazy place. Um, and we had, we had gotten with a guide who was great and his team was great. Um, and the, the people that help you up the mountain are, they're not, you know, in the Himalayas, they're Sherpas, Sherpas and uh, on, on Kilimanjaro, they're porters. And, and we had a team of 12 porters for the three of us because you can't build fires on the mountain. So they've got to carry gas and they've got to, you know, find water as you go up the mountain in all of these different places. And I mean, it was it was an incredible production. And, and you expect, oh, you know, it's a beautiful mountain. No, Kilimanjaro is horrible. It is horrible. You spend the first day in the jungles and there's monkeys at your campsite and that you gotta you can't leave out anything shiny because they'll climb down and they'll take it and you'll never see it again. And it's and it's awesome. And then the next day you're you're you know still climbing up and there's scrub brush and all this stuff. And the third day it's it's rock. It's like walking on the moon. And you spend four days walking for somewhere between six and ten hours on the surface of the moon. There's nothing to see. There's nothing to see. Um, and, you know, summit day, you start at, at one in the morning or two in the morning and you climb for seven hours in the dark. Uh, and, you know, that that was the only day we had trouble. My uh, my son, we're, we're probably an hour from the summit and we stopped to get a drink and he and it's, it's freezing and he peels off his coat and he just starts walking away. I'm like, dude. 
where are you going? And uh, the guides knew exactly what was going on, which was he was starting to suffer from elevation sickness. Oh, gosh. And the guide ran over, threw his coat on him, grabbed him and just started, you know, rubbing his shoulders, rubbing his shoulders, um, you know, and I don't know what he was saying to him. He was just sort of whispering in his ear, trying to get him to come back. Um, And, you know, he popped back a couple minutes later and, you know, just sort of overwhelmed and he's crying and just trying to sort of get his his senses about him. And then he got his senses back and it was like everybody at that point just had massive determination to get to the top. And so an hour later, you know, we were standing at the top of Kilimanjaro uh, all by ourselves. Everybody else had already summited that day. We were the last group to summit. Um, and it was, it was a big accomplishment. Of course, you know, then we had to leave the summit. We left the summit at about 9am and we had to do most of the descent the same day. So we, we went 48 kilometers on the last day up and most of the way down. Uh, we, we walked for 17 hours that day. Oh my gosh. Amazing. What an experience to, uh, share with your kids that, you know, no matter what happens, you guys, you know, that must be a memory forever. That's incredible. Yeah, it is. It, it went on every college application, you know, <laughs> what they learned, determination, courage, you know, all of those attributes they, they took away from that trip. So I'm glad we did that. Amazing. Doug, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. And uh, I know you've got a call that you have to jump onto. So um, let's do it again. Thanks. Thanks for sharing your uh, insight and wisdom over t- over 20 years experience. Sure. I hope it was helpful. It was. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.